Hi everyone, my name is Vanessa Chakier, and my guest today is one of the world's 100 most influential people according to Time magazine. Thinkers 50 selected him to be among the world's top 50 business thinkers. He is the founder and chairman of the world's leading brand and culture transformation. The company's name is Lindstrom Company and they operate in 30 countries. He is a speaker who is highly in demand and, in addition to this, the author of seven New York Times best-selling books. My guest today, Martin Lindstrom. This interview goes from personal to professional and business. First part, I want to understand Martin. Why does he wear black all the time and why is he not scared of death? I then look to understand him as a consumer because one thing you guys need to know about Martin, he's all about the consumer. He not only listens to them and speaks with them, he lives with them, like literally lives with them, has a room at their homes and lives like them. And so I wanted to understand Martin Lindstrom as a consumer. If we were to go visit his house, what will we find? What color is his toothbrush? What's in his fridge? And what's this gold Rolex story all about. Then we move on to speak about business and marketing. So I asked Martin to explain what a brand is, actually also drew what a brand represents to him. And then we move on to speak about small data and the difference between small data and big data and why organization or how organization can cultivate this. Without further ado, here's my interview with Martin. Make sure to leave your comments in the section below. I want to know which part of this interview was the most insightful or which one was kind of a perspective flipping moment or you learned something new. Let us know. Enjoy. Way to start. First of all, I'm super excited to meet you because I'm a big fan of yours, like a legit fan, as in your content is everywhere on my slides when I do trainings uh, or when I teach. I teach at university marketing classes and everybody has heard about Martin Lindstrom at one point or another. And um, yeah, I think I'm a student of yours and I love oh, your perspective. You. So I, I'm just sincerely super hyped up about oh, uh, thank you. meeting you. And you so, make yeah. You me blush. You make me really? blush, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. That's a good thing. Actually, and, and that's what I was saying. I was saying earlier before we started recording, I'm like, one thing we have in common is we always wear black. The only difference is, what color do you wear outside of work? Because you said, you know, you like to, you know, separate yeah. professional, personal. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, and I'll show you a secret here, okay? Yes! Um, so. <laughs> That's a great start. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So you see this one here? This is Lego, a Lego Titanic with 9,000 bricks, right? You see here, it's very nice. And so what I realized was originally when I was building Lego as a child that the five primary colors which Lego back then had, now they have 300, they were the guiding light for my taste without me knowing it subconsciously. So the colors I walk around in today are bright yellow, bright really? <laughs> red. Bright and so if I were to see you outside of work, you would be wearing bright yellow and red? I will be, I will look like a traffic light which had an issue. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that's one thing we have in, not in common is that I also wear black in my personal life. Well, I, I, I try to avoid it and I try to avoid it because it's calling close cognition and it is that it changes your personality and you need to have transformation between your work life and your private life. So hmm. the issue is if you know, I look better, I believe, in black than in, in colorful colors. But I, I do think that you need to, with our lives sitting in front of a screen, as we do right now a lot, 
I think it's super important that you are aware of to transform into another mindset. And if you don't do that, you eat a piece of your soul every day. Um, so I see a lot. You, you mentioned yellow and red. I still see yellow and red in that in that as well. So that's uh, there you supposed go. to be like, yeah, yeah it's it's fixed. Yeah, we but I had, like that you yeah. choose it to be in. Like I knew you were going to have this background. I'm like, if he's in New York, you're in New York right now, right? No, I'm actually in Switzerland oh, today, but we have similar studios around the world, so you can't see the difference. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Even the, that's very wise. Same thing with the black on. I love it. And, uh, you know, I have, I, I, it's crazy because I was reading a lot, you know, I mean, I, I read a lot about you, but um, something else we have in common um, is that we both wore a red kimono in Japan. Yeah. yeah and so exactly. I was watching your, your video on your website. And I didn't know you had chosen red. And I remember being in Japan and they're like, choose your kimono. I'm like, what color do I pick? And we both wore red. So I was thinking maybe for the thumbnail of my video, I would put you in a red kimono and me in a red kimono. I think people will be more likely to click because we're always wearing black. Fantastic. Go for it. <laughs> so tell me, what was your experience? I went in for a tea ceremony to understand the culture. Why were you wearing a red kimono in Japan? Well, um, I've worked a lot in Japan, as I have in most countries, uh, and I, uh, it was actually a fun story. I had to understand, as you know, they have uh, cute, cuteness is a very big part of the Japanese culture, particularly among girls. And a company asked me to find out where cuteness came from. Cuteness, like I remember the word is kawaii in Japan. Yeah, kawaii, exactly. They do well use done. it a lot. Kawaii, yeah. They wanted to understand okay. where it came from, the origin of cuteness um, in, for product innovation side. Um, and funny enough, if you ask anyone, they will have no idea about where it came from. So uh, we started to do ethnographic research and moved in with people across the whole Japan. And as part of that process of finding out where Kari came from, I dressed up and I became part of the society and we worked on it for three months and we found the solution. But it was just fascinating. We really, I loved every minute of it. And I saw so much of the Japanese culture, which you normally wouldn't see. It's so, very, yeah, it's oh yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely unique. So where does cuteness come from? Like for them, it where it did comes you... From, it comes from the school system, actually, because oh, really? the school system is very rigid and very... A sort of dictatorial and girls actually are receiving a grooming manual when they go to school as six years old where they have to cut the hair the same way if they if they go to a swimming oh. pool and swim in chlorine and the, the hair is not exactly black they will get coloring so they can color the hair black to that level they're not allowed to put any characters any drawings on anything if they do that they will be you know, expelled from the school so when you as a girl want to express emotions and colors and everything is black and white, it's not particular fun. So in secrecy, they'll start to develop these drawings as an, almost like an outlet. And of course, when they're 18 or 15 years of age, like the old balloon bursts, bursts and it's cuteness everywhere. And that's what you see in Shinjuku and in other places in, in Tokyo, how things are going extreme. So that's what we discovered partly through our research, right? And in fact, even in, in small data, I realized there's a lot of things that are, uh, you, you know, actually you do speak about Japan, about the, the even the, the idea of the sexuality part of Japan. You mentioned about how like every culture, like Russia, you speak about Russia, how it's so tamed down. They wear red lipsticks a lot and yeah. they, they express things. So I find it interesting, this 
kind of going to an extreme to balance things out. I feel like this has been yeah. kind of a repetitive uh, pattern in some cultures. It is it, not in some cultures. I actually would claim this in most most oh, yeah. cultures. You you see you see this. I mean, you see that in in the U.S. right now. Uh, with um, I talk a lot about how we have safe zones. I mean, we have a zone where we have to be happy. That's Disneyland. We have a zone where we can tell jokes you're not allowed to tell normally. You go into a stand-up comedian show. It, you know, you have all these different safe zones, and people jump from one safe to another. And the the water with the sharks in between is our everyday life, where sexual mm -hmm. harassment and political incorrectness and all this stuff is haunting people, right? So that has become even more extreme in the society. And as that happens, you will see on the ground, there'll be outlets where people literally try to compensate for that extreme mm. perfection people have to express to the world, right? So it happens in every culture, really, right? It's true. And even in, in within our homes, actually, I have so many questions and I'm going to try to keep a track, which I don't have a track except... But, you know, you were talking, I remember in a video, you're talking about the kind of paintings we put in our homes, what they say yeah. versus, you know, having a lot of books and all this. And it says a lot yeah. about us. So um, if, if right. I were to, to, to come visit your home, what kind of small clues may I find? Well, I actually did that experiment with one of my, my colleagues, which I invited <laughs> home and asked him to uh, analyze me. And it was, uh, it was frightening. Uh, because <laughs> why it was. yeah it was because it became so clear for me how right those guidelines are um mm. that that my home was built on those principles without me being aware of it uh, so you will see of course my home is very colorful duh right um, mm. and you will see that i have huge paintings right which basically psychology-wise is saying that you are very self-confident and you have a big ego, which probably is true. Um, <laughs> and then you will see, it, it, you will see that there are small clues of the child within. I have lots of. I have the first piece of Lego wooden dock. Okay. Yeah, no wooden dock. Before Lego was invented, or okay. when Lego was invented, the first piece of toy was actually a wooden quack 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 dock. Um, and uh, so I have that very first piece uh, or, or other stuff. So you'll see the child within all, all these different clues, which I'm talking about myself is really scattered throughout your home. And it really frustrated me because I could see what a horrible person I am <laughs> by looking at my own stuff. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, this is terrible. But I love that you did the exercise on, on yourself. Actually, one of the big questions I'm asking, I moved in recently to a new place and I don't know what to put on my walls. So now that, that's one of the question you're actually inspiring me. So I'm like, okay, maybe I need to put color. Do you think there's a quote that says that people who wear a lot of black have a very colorful mind? Yes, I do think so. Yeah. Because, and, and I think I increasingly have come to realize that after I've interviewed a lot of people wearing black, um, I, I spoke to the inventor of Chuck E. Cheese, who's also invented in Atari, Nolan. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said to me, and a lot of other people have said the same to me with our inventors, that don't want to wear a lot of colorful clothes because then they have to think about what clothes to wear. Oh, and I'd yeah. rather use the energy on something else which adds meaning than to figure out what clothes you're wearing every day. So that's a, a, a consistent message I received from a lot of innovate, innovators and inventors um, around the world. And I think it's true. Of 
cost is always an exception, but yeah. It's true. Okay, so I, I also agree with this quote, but I wanted to see what you think. And by the way, I found um, I found uh, the photo just for, for fun purposes of uh, me actually wearing Oh, that is, yeah. Ah, how amazing. So, and I yeah. took a, if you have one of you, because I took a screenshot from the video on your website so that I could put this as our interview. <laughs> but if you have one that's super clear of you, and right, because you even said it on an interview, you said it's very hard to find a photo of you wearing colors. And almost yes. probably even for me. So I was like, for sure, that's the thumbnail. So if you have a photo of you, <laughs> Oh, no, I'll, I'll see if I can find a high res of it. I probably have to screen grab it, but we do have that as a high res video recording. So I'll, I'll oh, talk to my production yes. team to see if they can get okay, one. Okay, perfect. If not, I'll, I'll just take the screenshot. Something else we have in common aside from a red kimono and black. Uh, we're both chameleons and we'll talk about this later. But um, I want to um, speak just a little bit because I, I want to get to know you a bit more. You mentioned on one interview that, like me, you're not scared of death. And I feel like yeah. we don't talk a lot about death. It's like almost taboo. No. And I want to know how come, what brought you to, you know, be fearless of it? So um, I think, to be frank, I think there's two sides to that story. I think the first side to that story is if I should believe my astrologist, I have an astrologist lying in my horoscope every year. And supposedly I'm drawn to danger in my star mm -hmm. signs. So if that's true, then um, obviously I'm somewhat hardwired to be drawn to, to, to death as well. Um, not that I live my life that way. But I think, I think um, my whole childhood was very much drawn to challenges and dangers. I'll give you one example. When I was younger, I, my mom and dad would borrow their books, or their boats to me. They had a sailing boat 30 feet long and I would take my friends on board on the boat and we would sail to another country in the um, in Europe. So basically from over the, the big mm -hmm. sea and whatever and it would be super dangerous, I'm sure. And we would, I think my, I think I was eight years of age. Wow. <laughs> and my friends was 10. Okay. Wow. And uh, <laughs> yes. so... So that's a good, so we came home after two weeks and my parents said, so how did it go? Yeah, it went fine. Um, and wow, and okay. uh, no, kudos to my parents having the courage to do it. But also I, I think that taught me a lot of things. When I sailed around the world with my mom and dad, which I did for two years uh, as a child as well, um, my dad gave me the challenge that I had to earn my own money and pay for the food on the table for two years. So I, um, I went through all sorts of exercises uh, to earn money, um, selling Lego men at the local market in Paris, uh, and stuff like that. But um, what happened was that I felt the reality very quickly. And it helped to define who I am and what I'm not. And I think a lot of younger people today are suffering from the fact that they are born and raised in cotton and everything is so protective Easier. around them. So I think that's the issue. And I think, so I think my childhood for sure has helped me push myself to the boundaries. And you? Why am I not scared of death? I read a lot of books on stoicism. I'm a big fan of oh. the stoic, stoic philosophy, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. And I think, uh, you know, I'm just such a happy person on a daily basis, which I wasn't when I was back then, that 
I feel and I meditate a lot and sometimes I get to a point of so much stillness that I feel like if this were to be my last day I I die with no regrets so because I live my life so much motivated by fear that should I do this or this and then if life were to end tomorrow I would have wanted to do this and I just continuously do what I want and uh, so that me too one day if I you know get hit and I fly in those three seconds I will also say like I'm just fulfilled and people think it's very strange of me because I'm, I'm much younger I'm, I'm in my 30s and people are like wait what are you talking about I'm like I know like when you're just happy and you give so much love to people and I'm I'm just peaceful that any day is an extra bonus day for me so I and it's sincere well, that, that's exactly no that's exactly the say the way I see life and I, and I do see every day as a as a bonus I'll tell you a fun story so I did an interview with Chris Hetfield the other day He's the, the astronaut. He's the guy yes. playing the David Bowie up in, in orbit. And um, and I told him the story about me flying in the air. And, and I basically you really see it like this, do you? You, you? you describe it very specifically, three to five <laughs> seconds in the air. And you're always going in one direction when you say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, so, so I told that story to Chris and I said to him, listen, you've seen everything. He's been flying around the world 2,900 times. He run the biggest international space stations you no know, he has credentials which are to die for so to speak and i said to him so when you land what would you like to think and he said martin i'm completely different than you are <laughs> i would think about how do i land the safest possible way what angle should i land in it was just like so funny uh, i had this philosophical there was a philosophical type of view of the world and he was sort of talking about okay well my bone will be breaking this way and not in that angle <laughs> so yeah as if he would have time in three to seconds to actually move his body to land that way you know well but if it's... you know chris you would say he probably would no i don't know how but <laughs> he probably <Wow>. would <laughs> that's that's incredible do you like astronomy are you a fan of astronomy or do you just like um, it i do know what i increasingly believe in it i think it was jp morgan once saying that astrology is only for billionaires not millionaires and uh, <laughs> I think it's kind of funny um i think what's interesting about it is that it probably gives you a unspoken guide line or a guiding light in an everyday life which can be at times pretty chaotic mm. and i would certainly say from my point of view um with the predictions i've received they've been pretty damn on uh, all the time yeah very spot on so is it something which are dictating direct behavioral changes on a day-to-day -day basis probably not but i'm certainly aware of it i have to say okay okay very interesting and i know you said something about not liking the word interesting yeah or not exactly tell us can you give us other can you give can you give me other objectives because i do say it often but it is very sincere like i am legitimately interested when i say the word like i wouldn't be like mm -hmm, interesting like if i say it's like interesting what other yeah. objectives do you have to propose oh customer focused is probably a good one well oh, we're going to talk about that. strategy right <laughs> that type of thing we oh, want to be more focused. <laughs> yeah a cx strategy right big data that type of thing i think what's happening in a corporate world today is that increasingly people are haunted by cliches and yeah. it's almost like people don't talk anymore the talk in sound bites which are embedded with safe sentences which sounds good in the moment but which frankly speaking doesn't make sense when you listen to the bigger oh. context um so yeah 
that would be it. And I, I hear it a lot in our day-to-day -day work with our clients around the world. <laughs> it's just like, and and oh, I hear God. it with all kinds of emotions attached. Like some of them you're like, is this a very true, interesting, a legitimate, interesting, or that's just yeah. like trying to fill in a gap of silence. You know, there's also yeah. that kind of. Well, I, I, and that's where I'm horrible because I really listen to what people are saying. So, so when people say that's interesting, it. then I have all sorts of landfills coming up, right? Yeah, no, I, ha I have to be more, more careful as well with, with my personal usage of it. Okay, Martin, what color is your toothbrush? You didn't expect uh, that one? I, it's a very good question. It's white red, and blue. Oh, so, okay, because, you know, by the way, in class or in my trainings, you would actually see me going like, okay, guys, according to you, we're going to talk about what is the most um, frequently bought color? No, what is the color that is most frequently bought for toothbrush? I'll give you the answer after this. And then people, <laughs> and oftentimes people will be like blue and people will yellow. And, and then the answer I think is 40% is red. And then I'll be like, okay, where's my book of biology? And then I open biology and I'll be like, okay, guys, according to research, Okay, Martin Lynch, you guys want to get the book? What is the most um, significantly preferred smell? Is it chocolate? Is it coffee? Or is it baby powder? And it's just, I'm telling you, you should really come to my, one of my trainings. And then people are trying to guess. And we try to understand why before I tell them the answer. So, so I was like, I, I, because I do this in my trainings, even when I do with small, medium companies, I told myself I can now finally have the man I use his book. <laughs> Actually, tell us the color of his toothbrush. <laughs> so you have all three colors, white, red, and blue. Yeah, well, listen, I hate to be normal. I really hate to be normal. <laughs> I love normal. it. <laughs> I love it. Or common, right? Like your latest book, Common Sense. You're like, oh, you don't... yeah, it's horrible. That's... Imagine you wake up and you're average. That would really be the worst nightmare for me. Wow. I'd rather stand out for the sake of standing out than actually, I mean, anything else. So, yes, of course, I have a toothbrush with three different colors and not one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> next question. What is on your fridge? So, um, that's a very good, I'm going to say something now, which is a bit weird. Uh, I actually go to the Fresh Farmer's Market every, two times a week. And it's at five o'clock in the morning. And I'm in Switzerland right now in Zurich. So I go there at 5.05 in the morning. Not that I'm very an A person, but I am in this case. And I love going to the Fresh Farmer Market in Switzerland because it's huge. And you have literally everything brought in from the farms in Switzerland. So you have a cheese, you have three cheese stores. And the cheese stores are probably, they will probably be 90 to 100 feet long with just different cheeses right and yeah. then you'll have vegetables and meat and all this stuff so i fill my fridge with all that stuff i have no uh, fmcg or cpg stuff in my fridge everything is 100 natural okay. and i only cook with that stuff okay and you like cooking with that stuff no i don't oh. but i i'm so blessed that i have people around me which are really good at cooking oh that's great okay so that's another thing we have in common i don't like cooking either but um I don't have people cooking for me. So if you have any tips and tricks of how to get there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. Somebody asked me, what's your vision? I told myself, maybe, you know, I don't know what the vision vision is. I mean, I know, but I'm like, maybe to get to a point where I can have somebody cook for me on a, <laughs> on a weekly basis. It's <laughs> a very, very good trick. I would, but the trick is when you find your partner, I want to say, if you don't have a partner, then you make sure on the first blind date or you date that you, your cooking is so horrible 
that you'll never be asked to cook again. That's a really good <laughs> trick, just so you know. <laughs> I should put this on, a, on, a, on a, I should actually put this as a disclaimer. Do you enjoy yeah. cooking? That should be my filter question, actually. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. You know, you, you mentioned uh, also, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm going with the interview. We have one hour straight, right? Just so Ooh, that I know, I know when to shift yeah. to we have very one hour straight. Exactly. perfect, we have excellent. Five. So another two minutes of, of personal, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Um, and you said, you know, like now, just because we're talking about partners, you said that, you know, the way, I mean, you travel once every, not probably now it changed, but once every, you know, few days and 300 days, I think I read somewhere out of 365. And you said that it's, it's impacted your personal life. Yeah. So how has it impacted your personal life and in what areas and, and how, you know, do you, if you were to have a relationship, do you bring the person along? How, how has it impacted you? Um, in that level, like the work, personal balance? It, it, I mean, what happens is that, I'll tell you a theory which may be interesting for you. Um, I have something called the transformation theory. Okay. So if you go from destination A to B, like you're visiting your parents, what you will notice is that when you travel from A to B, it feels longer than when you go from B to A. Are you back? Yes, I, yes. So why is that? Well, the reason why is because when you go from A to B, you sort of record the whole journey. When you go back again, you have rendered it and you're playing it back. So you don't feel it's lasting that long because actually you're not seeing it anymore. It's just a movie you're running in your head. Now, what I noticed is that we as human beings have a tendency to go into a routine track. Uh, it basically means that uh, we are establishing routines everywhere around us because it makes us relax more because we then can play back the movies. A routine mm -hmm. is basically a way to give yourself permission to play back a movie which already had been done. So when we started to work for Swiss International Airlines, an airline company in Europe, um, when I started to interview the uh, the cabin crew in the air, I asked them, how often do you hear back from, from ground handling? They said, never. I said, you never hear back from them? Yeah, they send a newsletter every half a year, something like that. So I spoke to people on ground and I said, how often do you communicate with people in the cloud? They said, every week. Every week? I said, no, you must be, it's not true. Let's show me, see, here's the email. That's true, it was every week. <clears throat> and I realized that when you are in the cloud, what happens is you go through a lot of transformations. You go to Paris, you go back again, you go to Zurich, you go back again, you go to LA, you go back again. Um, and through that, you're actually changing your perception of time. Um, and what we learned, and this is important, we learned that the more transformations you go through, the slower time goes. Hmm. The more transformations you go through, the slower time goes. And let me just prove that for you. You go on a, you probably tried it. You go on a weekend trip, just away for two days, okay? Yeah. And you come back home and it feels, my gosh, I feel like I've been away for a week, right? My gosh, it's just crazy, right? Have you tried it? Yeah, it's happened. Time went slower because you had more transformation. You're dragged out of your routine. So what I've learned through life is that we have this tendency to lean up against routines. And in fact, it shortens your life. You actually die quicker. Um, so the more you create transformations in your life, the more you break routines, the longer you live, perception-wise. And wow. perhaps in reality, we don't know that yet. I'll, no, the study's done in it in the moment, but let's see. So my private life is very much a transformation. It is lots of small micro milestones every second day 
was changing my routine. So you will not be able to find me in a set of routines as much as most people. Of course, you're addicted to it. We all are. But uh, that's really the principle of my private life, right? Wow. And, you know, it reminds me of a quote by Paolo Coelho who says, if you think adventure is dangerous, try routine. It is lethal. Exactly. Exactly. So I feel I like there's a quote. link with this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that's very interesting, actually. But, yeah, I, I, no, it's not very interesting. It's, it's, um, it's marvelous. It's, it's, ah, it's fascinating. <laughs> I should actually, I should write like a list of all the adjectives. Just in general, I, I'm always constantly trying to improve myself it, to the point where I actually Googled how to say um, hello in uh, Danish and it's just, hey, yeah. or yeah, hi. 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 And when you say goodbye to people, you say hi, hi. Hi, hi. It's, very simple. it's a very simple no. language. <laughs> hi, hi. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we're not that intelligent in Denmark, so, so we have to sort of use 50% of the words again. It's kind of a recycling. But wait, what happens, Martin, if somebody's so enthusiastic? Like, hi, hi, hi. So what happens? Like, well, we get confused. Oh, you're fucked. You're, <laughs> that's bad. Then you basically say goodbye. <laughs> so I probably, people would think I'm saying goodbye everywhere if I were to go. Oh, that's, uh, that's crazy. Okay. Um, so we know that the color of your toothbrush. Okay. So maybe um, let's move on slowly to uh, marketing. I want to know, um, I, I think I have two, two questions. I want to know more about you as a consumer, because that also, you know, I'm, I'm also a very curious person. I think maybe you even probably to another extent than me, but um, I want to know, oh, by the way, I have to say my favorite description of you um, is you who said it, you are a compulsive collector of clues. I had to, I had to mention it. That was my favorite because you say curious person challenging things around you. You mentioned explorer and raconteur. Uh, there's different, a small data guy, by the way, I'm a small data girl. I'm on your team, Martin. Like I only talk about small data. People are like, what's small data? I'm like, guys, it's all about small data. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so and I send them articles to my clients, you know, they're, they're leaders of small to medium organizations that yeah. are very successful looking to rebrand. So, um, but I want to know just more about you in the terms that with everything you're discovering around you, how has your, your, the nature of your work influenced your own consumption? So if we look at, you know, Martin before, well, I mean, you've always kind of been a curious person, but can you identify well, maybe the question is, how would you describe yourself as a consumer and what's been the impact of your work on your own consumption behavior? So I always have two Martins with me. I have me as a person and then I have the observer to myself when I do certain things, which is really, really irritating for me and for everyone else around me. Okay. So, yeah, it is bad. Um, <laughs> And it is bad because I always analyze my behavior and why I make the decisions I make. Um, I think there's two things to say. Remember, I hate to be not, I, I hate to be normal. So uh, really, uh, you would never see me buy mainstream brands. Okay, that's for sure. Exceptions. Uh, because, because I don't want to be average, right? Um, and then on the other hand, I clearly, I clearly have been throughout life been impacted by my own degree of self-confidence and self-esteem. And that has been mirrored into the world of brands. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm still today very aware of it where I fall through the cracks and where I don't. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with one of my favorite stories, which is when I bought my first Rolex many years ago. Um, and um, I was very proud of the Rolex. Uh, and not only that, it was a gold Rolex, which made it even gold. better. 
gold Rolex. Can you imagine? That's... So here I was with my my amazing watch, which I, by the way, bought officially because uh, it was so waterproof that it could withstand the pressure six thousand feet under the sea. And I swim six thousand feet under the sea every day with my suitcase in black. It's standard, right? So of course. That's the reason why I bought this Rolex, right? So I went to a meeting in Switzerland at Nestle and one executive comes up with me, up to me and he says, listen, uh, what is that? I said, that's a gold Rolex. And he says to me, I would oh. never have expected that about you. And I didn't know what that meant, but I had a feeling. So I immediately went down to Bahnhofstrasse in, in Zurich. It's a very well-known, very fashionable street. Uh, I went into a second-hand dealer, tried to sell my, my watch and he looked, me in the eyes he said it's a gold rolex you know that right? i said yeah i know it's a gold rolex he said and that's a woman's watch the one you have there <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, he didn't want to buy it by the way so that was that was a, sort of a my eureka moment of realizing how stupid i am myself because why did i buy the watch i bought it because what we know today as you know is that everyone is out of balance and it's a gap between being in balance and out of balance was to find the opportunity for a new brand or a new need. And I obviously bought it because I had no self-esteem. And I wanted to say to the world, yes, I made it when I bought the watch. It was a way of bragging, really. And so I think what I've come to realize over the years with myself that I constantly fight between this lack of self-esteem and the bragging versus too much self-esteem <laughs> and oh, no need to brag that's, that's and it's it. really those two balances and you'll see that in in how i buy stuff and what i buy that i almost never buy things with a logo on i think i have a, a promotion sheet on here but the logo and all this i have no idea what it is but the the clothes i wear have no logos on it my i'm totally anonymous i i hate logos on it all that stuff because I don't want to pay stuff to be able to promote it on behalf of the brand. I mean, oh, seriously? that's what I do for a living. Why should I buy it? It doesn't make sense to me, <laughs> okay. right? So, um, so yeah, I'm very weird in that regards, I have to tell you. Oh, I, I love the weirdness. I honestly, I love it. Actually, I had once somebody asked me, um, I was giving a training to, uh, again, small, medium. Uh, no, it was entrepreneurs of small, medium companies in Montreal. And somebody said, uh, Madame, why why do you wear like a very regular three dollar mask you're in marketing and i said what do you why do you think i actually got it i'm gonna ask you back the question why do you think i got a three dollar i'm like and i said and i don't know if you can relate with this but i said the more you understand marketing and branding and the more you understand yourself the more immune you become to it so to me when i see someone wearing a hundred dollar fifty mask i yeah. don't judge but i know that it's a statement, it's a communication, it's a means of expression that I don't need to, you know, I think I'm very enthusiastic enough as a person if I were to wear colors and brands. And so for me, I don't need that means of expression. And when students no. heard this, they're like. I, 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 de I definitely agree with you. And I would say that, um, you know, what I'm saying right now to you is it sounds for some people watching or, or listening to this perhaps a bit strange, but as you may be aware of, if you look at my screen right now, there is a correlation between self-esteem and brand so if i have <gasps> yes you're drawing oh my god yes <laughs> if you have self-esteem here and you have brands here brand visibility 
then you will see that the curve is like this. The more brand visibility you have, the less self-esteem you have. And so if you have big Gucci signs and Gucci logos, your Chanel logos with big logos like this, which a lot of people have. And in fact, I met a good friend of mine the other day and she had only Chanel logos everywhere. And I said to her, you are aware of this correlation going on and funny enough the week after all logos were gone and she told me how horrible it was because 95 percent of all her clothes had chanel logos everywhere and she started to laugh because she looked around on the street and said oh this lady doesn't have a lot of self-esteem this one so so basically this is a very simple model and of course if this is true which is my own little hypothesis then basically i want to show the world i have a lot of self-esteem so remove all these logos right I, okay, that really makes sense. I, I think it's true. I think it's true because I used when I was younger, maybe you 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 as well. Um, you would you would wear big logos, big brands. I, I really, if I were to do this differently, I would I would draw. I'll not show you. Um, and I don't know if it's linked with self esteem, but yes, you know, self. I'm I'm doing my own drawing, brand visibility, and I'm writing super fast. But I think also another one would be like the less you know who you are as an identity, the more you need the brand's identity to define you. But I don't know how it yeah. would go. Yeah, that 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 probably is true. You have to remember that the less you know about yourself and the degree of self-esteem, those are two factors are really which are really difficult also to measure. How do you know if you don't know a lot about yourself? That's Most so people will claim they know a lot about themselves. If I said to you, how much do you know about yourself? Well, you probably will say a lot. But if I went to you 20 years ahead in time, you probably will tell me 20 years from now, I knew nothing about myself. Right? 100. Yeah, 100%. So it's very contextual and self-esteem is the same. How do I interview a person, a person and say, what is your degree of self-esteem? But very few people, unless they have a lot of self-esteem, will say they have no self-esteem. <laughs> that is true. Because to say it, you need to have a lot of self-esteem. You get what I mean? So it's two very, very difficult factors. But I agree with your model, definitely. Okay, so yeah, no, so we're, we're on the same page. And since you brought up your pen earlier, I did have an exercise that I do with everyone that I interview. By the way, we have Dory Clark as a mutual connection. I, I was there yeah, for the LinkedIn Live. Um, I want you to take out your pen and maybe not a paper, but you can use your own background like you did earlier. I think it was very creative uh, and we like to be different. So no white background for this. I want you to draw a brand, what a brand means to you in 30 seconds. There's no other instruction. If I said draw brand, the concept of brand in 30 seconds, what would you draw? And you tell me when you're ready. So I start the counter. You are, and it's go. Done. You're done. <laughs> Martin, you're officially the fastest to have completed <laughs> this exercise ever. Okay. And I like that you're actually part of the picture. Okay. Explain to us. I kind of know what you did here, but explain to us what you did. Well, you know, I was just thinking about what is the easiest brand. I, I wanted to do a Lego logo, but I just know how difficult it is to draw that. So, so I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and then I could do a Nike, but that's so cliche. So I yeah. thought, okay, I'll go even more cliche and just take Apple because it's super simple to do in three seconds. So explain to us, what is a brand then through that drawing? And a, a, brand, a brand is a projection of your own image to who you'd like to be or seen as. It could be one definition. Um, I think that what we know about brands today is from multiple studies that that 
it's a little bit like in close cognition. The more you wear that brand, the more you mirror yourself to the world of being that brand. Um, mm -hmm. And we've seen that through studies where people were exposed to an Apple logo in three seconds versus a McDonald's logo. And when they were exposed to the Apple logo, they actually became more creative or to a McDonald's logo, they became faster. Uh, so, so I think a brand really mirrors the world we would like to, to be part of. And of course, it's also a quality mark. And it's also a mark of consistency. And it's also a mark of values you stand for and a lot of other things. But in the end of the day, it's an aspiration. I, I love the answer. And by the way, no one ever gave me the same answer. So when I have to, when I'm hired to talk about brands to small to medium companies, I have decided to be the one who gathers my favorite different types of, of definition and to give them a holistic perspective. Because Denise Leon did another drawing, Dory did another drawing. And so I have become the probably one of the only that I know around me that takes all these drawings and explain what brand and Marty Neumeyer, probably you also know. And I put all these drawings I and I, Yeah, and I said, this is what a brand is seen from different perspective of-, of, of I love that, I love that, well done. What did, yeah. what did what did Martin Neumeyer, what did he draw? Uh, Martin Neumeyer drew two people um, and they're having a conversation. And he said, a brand is what people say about you, a bit like you, the projection part. He, he focused on the perception of it uh, versus Denise Leon. She drew a person that then becomes bigger. And she said, a brand helps you become something else. It fills a need so you grow with it. And Dory drew um, like a, a person and then she put like she put two arrows and one I think it was a smiley face and the other was an X and it said a brand allows you to attract the people you want but also to repel those you don't want and uh and what else did I get yeah I've gotten a lot of different types of drawings so now what I do with my students or my my entrepreneurs is I ask them to draw a brand on day one and then I show them how experts have drawn and then I've been you know I'm all about collecting perspectives which brings me to a quote that I absolutely loved that you said on an interview with Tom Villier, which was, we become blind when we see the world through one point of view. What a great transition here. Yeah. We tend to see through our own lens. And if you see through another person's eyes, you will see a gap and a gap for opportunities. And this is where it's an opportunity for a brand, a new service and a product. And something I stand for Martin so much is perspectives. I'm constantly like, I'm constantly looking for perspective when I do consulting work and all this. I also spend time with the clients, but I don't sleep uh, with the consumers like you do, which we'll talk about in a moment. And I'm constantly obsessed with the notion of perspectives. And, and you're the one who speaks about it the most in the marketing branding world that I know of. You're always thinking of the customer perspective and, and understanding them through their lens, but you go a step further to live with them. Um, tell me, about why this matters and why it's not, I mean, it's one of the things I learned. I've been in business for 10 years. I'm, I'm still young and still learning, but in 10 years, because I've studied psychology, probably, I'm also a black sheep in, in the field, but because I've, I've, I come from another lens, for me, it's like, one of the things I learned is that the customer perspective is so a blind spot. It's not, it's some choose not to see it, some ignore it and some see it, but they're, they're not really interested to dive into their perspective. Just let's talk about perspective for a moment and, and lead us um, with a message for organizations, I guess. That's a long question. 
Well, it's a good question. I, I think uh, the best way of illustrating that is to tell you about two crazy kids which are sitting in the dorm room smoking weeds and they are off their heads and they shoot a selfie. And the day after, of course, hell breaks loose as they posted it online and the parents freaks out and they agree on that. What if we could retract that photo? Wouldn't that be great? And that becomes the story of how Snapchat was invented, a $50 billion company. What that characterizes that story <laughs> is, is two things. One is a very high degree of empathy. The ability to put yourself in the shoes of a customer and feel what that customer is feeling. And these two kids felt what the customer was feeling mm -hmm. because they were the customer. Exactly. And they would, they would acquire like-minded kids to become part of that tribe, which would grow from a very solid foundation, which we today call a purpose. The, the empathy would be a huge part of that. And empathy is directly correlated with common sense. The high degree of empathy, the high degree of common sense. If you have no empathy, it's the opposite, which is what I call nonsense, mm -hmm. right? Um, as a company grows, legal comes in, they want to protect the company for not being taken over, compliance, protect them for not being sued. They will have all sorts of processes to protect their growth and the scaling of it. And slowly you will notice that even the founders leave, think Twitter, think Facebook, not Facebook, but certainly you'll take um, Apple or you can take uh, almost any company out there, uh, Uber, whatever, and the founders will leave and empathy disappears as they leave because suddenly they're living on a halo effect of what the consumer were like, meaning that the foundation and the founders were so embedded in the lifestyle of a, their customers that that became the leading guideline for the whole organization. But when they leave, they don't have that pipeline into listening to the consumer yeah. anymore. So they clinch on, the new employees clinch on to the philosophy of the of the founder, which of course no longer is relevant because the consumer moves on. And that puts you into the light of today. Over the last two years, I would claim that we have never seen such a global synchronized behavioral change among the customers as we have now. So if you ask a CEO, how well do you know your customers? They probably will tell you well, and they'll say, I saw a report. But think about this. The consumer had probably never changed as much as it did now and will never change this slow again. So I think what has happened is the gap between where companies are, i.e. brands, and where consumers are is drifting away. And the cliff between those two different worlds are getting bigger and bigger. And with that bureaucracy comes bigger. The companies, they become more busy dealing with themselves, protecting themselves, rather than looking from outside in and actually challenging themselves. And that's the biggest problem we see right now. And that's the reason why it's so important to see the world from multiple points of view. Because if you only see it from your own drinking the Kool-Aid type of point of view, you're dying because the world is just evolving too quickly. And, you know, this is the part where when I watch your content, I'm like, yes, I get excited. There's like a whole talk. I remember you did a conference and I'm like, that's exactly what I believe. And so my role, what can I do as a, as a, as a, a decision maker who accompanies leaders to put themselves in the customer perspective? So here's something I've done because I, I really feel I want to, you know, contribute to your mission. I want to close that gap. So here's one exercise I did with leaders. Um, I asked them to take a photo of anything in the room. 
And so they take a photo and then I gave them a little um, a carton and I wrote on it a perspective. So it was like firefighter or one of them was, uh, you know, cardiologist or a, a restaurant owner. And I asked them to take a second photo, but, you know, using that word. And they took a second photo and we put both photos next to each other. And I said, if your goal is to serve firefighters, you would have had it all wrong to share a photo with your photo as a piece of content or if it were to be a campaign. Um, another type of workshops I do is I ask, I ask I them... It. Sorry? It's I love, I love your, your concept. It's a very good idea. Well, is there yeah. something else I can do? Because I feel that, you know, give, giving those entrepreneurs questions is not enough. I feel like if you don't sincerely care, even if I give you a list of questions and made you do this exercise, I feel you will still not take the dive. And, and, and to me, it's remarkable because like the way I am, I'm all about caring about the people I work with. I get the chance to choose who I work with. So what can I do more? to help them not only understand the importance of the customer perspective, but really make them live it without having them to go, you know, spend 24 to 72 hours at their customers' homes. What Do you have any recommendations of what I can do to, to further promote that message? I, I, think, I think the most important thing to say is that um, you have the opportunity to make your delegates live a real life with a customer remotely mm. and I think it's worth <coughs> trying it I mean the reality is that most people when we do ethnographics virtually are doing the interview through the smartphone and can move around in the home and you can open the fridge with them you can look at the bookshelf with them you can look at your virtual photos <coughs> whatever it is so I would most definitely, if I was you, create a virtual panel of 20 real consumers. Oh, yeah. And I would have people dialing into those virtual consumers for half an hour as a breakout, each of them, and then interview them and learn about their lives and ask them questions. And perhaps you give them a mission. Mm. whatever that is that mission back to your firefighter version or not um, I think that makes things more real here's the issue I know that we want to talk in sound bites today yeah because we have no attention span but life is not in sound bites it takes time for you to trust me and you don't build trust in five minutes no. You don't build a brand in five minutes. You may no. build high awareness, but not trust. And therefore, if you want to teach your audience to understand customers, you also need to force them to be willing to listen. And willing to listen is easy to train in five minutes, but it's very difficult when it takes half an hour, an hour. And it's only the personal intrigue and discovery which will fuel them to continue listening. So I probably would go much further than your great idea. And I really love it with the sticky notes and, and the, yeah. the firefighter role. But um, try in step two to go that far. Um, maybe yeah. you can do it without you having to do a whole recruitment process. Maybe you ask everyone to supply one person oh, and then you swap the people too. between each other, right? Mm. Uh, and have them ready. And that way, you give them a mission, whatever that mission is, which will make them see life very, very differently. 
And I tell you, everyone would be very talkative straight after that session because everyone would have discovered something, not just discovered it, but discovered how they discovered something, which is just as important as discovering it, right? And that they would have never probably seen it that way if they wouldn't, yeah, that's it, they wouldn't have taken that perspective. And it's it pretty, trains a yeah. muscle in your brain, which is difficult to explain because it's the same as you have to explain a 12 year old how it is to fall in love. Mm. And I'm sure whatever description you'll come with, it either sounds like a really bad cliche or it sounds like something which is so utopian and so strange that people will define you as being mad. And, and, yeah. and, and nothing of those two things, if you try to fall in love, makes sense, but it actually is true. And I think that's, that's the concept of empathy. That is, you need to make people feel they're drowning a little bit, right? And in that process, they find other dimensions in their brain which they never would have been aware of before. So throw them into the yes. deep gap by doing a real exercise because then it's not safe anymore. And safety is quite often making us feel very rational because everything is so controlled. But it's not controlled when you move into a consumer's home and live with That's them. That's it. That's it. And, um, and so maybe because I just saw the time we have like five minutes left, let me just try to condense because there's so many other things I would have liked to talk about. I want to condense to, uh, by the way, I love your three banking accounts analogy. Oh, thank you. And I really like it because oftentimes the banking account everybody knows of is the financial one. Um, but I like that you said, you know, there's a brand uh, account and then there's a learning account or the listening account in this case. Um, so I just wanted to mention this because I knew I would okay. talk to you, but um, let me think, uh, let me summarize it. Uh, Cause uh, 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 I have a few quotes here. I would say, perhaps um, we'll do two, maybe two last questions or three, three last questions. I'll try to keep it to three. The first question is, I want you to define small data and why or how can our audience listening who is in business cultivate this more within their organization? Well, small data is what I define as seemingly insignificant observational um, observations you make, which may not at first seems to make any sense, but at a subconscious level, they help to define a whole new phenomenon. Small data is, for me, uh, typically spoon-feeding thoughts into a creative process. It helps you to see things in a different perspective, and it helps you to correlate dimensions which you never thought about before were fitting together. Whereas if you go big data, you already have set the agenda. You don't want to listen to other agendas because you're just correlating data. And quite often correlation is bad. So small data is all about causation, the reason why, and big data is all about correlation, right? And, and how do you explain to a very results-driven, who cares about the financial banking account here, the importance of small data? Because that's something I have to face, I have to face constantly. So yeah. how do you tell them what the uh, impacts are? It's very simple. You go the opposite way and you tell that a typical big data strategy conclusion could be the more umbrellas you sell the more it rains oh yes you said this once in an interview it's true yeah and that that's the essence of it um and that has become increasingly the essence of everything we have to remember that 
you need a causation, you need a hypothesis first. Mm -hmm. um, when everyone goes in that direction, go the opposite direction. Let everyone do correlations on data, which already is preset. And guess what? You won't come anywhere. But if you break the rule and create hypotheses which are unusual, you actually may go the opposite way. And I don't need to tell you, almost every single larger innovation on planet Earth were not based on big data. They were oh, based no. on small data, right? That's true. Okay, I love this. Um, and the second question would be, this is hard. Um, what's the smallest clue about yourself that has been one of the largest opportunities for you and your growth that you've discovered about yourself? Um, that probably would have been uh, that I realized I had an age, an inner age, a twin age, which were at that stage, I think eight or nine years of age. and. So I realized we all have three ages. You may be familiar with my theory. We have the twin aids and the twin aids is my inner aids. We have the physical aids and then we have what I call the corporate aids. The physical aids is your real aids. Mm -hmm. The corporate aids typically is older than you. If you work in corporations, you are haunted by politics and bureaucracy. And the twin aids is the younger self of you. And I realized that the older, the younger self of you becomes, the more you lose creativity the more you become part of the bureaucracy and the more you die. So you have to maintain the inner self, the younger inner self. And once I realized that and came, I became comfortable about the idea of that I felt like a child when sitting in a boardroom uh, with a lot of old people around me, um, I actually used it as my strength rather than trying to hide it, right? And make it a weakness. Would you say that that's one of your biggest lessons in life? I think it comes down to a no. lot of that, no? No, okay, so so, no. so so two last questions. Yeah. Biggest lesson in life, and then I'll end with the last question. <laughs> um, biggest Please. lesson in life probably is that um, you only have three opportunities in your life. And if you grab those three, you get more. But if you don't grab those three for some odd reason, you don't get more. You don't get the opportunities, you see the opportunities. And it's a matter about you being open to see acknowledge them and grab them. And that's a trick. And everyone gets opportunities, but very few people decide to see them and grab them, right? I got goosebumps. I love that. I, I really stand by that message. And my last question is, is there a question I haven't asked you that you would like to be asked for from um, on my behalf or on uh, no, behalf of my audience? No, no, you actually ask really good questions and thank you. And thank you for doing your homework so well. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, That's just definitely. evidence of how much of a fan I actually am. So thank <laughs> you so polite. much for, for, for taking the time, thank honestly, for, for meeting. And uh, if there's anything I can do, this could go off. Right? If there's anything I can do to thank you back, if you need anything. Have you ever been to Montreal, by the way, at all? I have. I love Montreal. I was there many years ago. I love the city. Uh, I love the nightlife. It's a fantastic place, definitely. I'm a big any, fan any, of Montreal. Really? Any small clues there? Ah. Yeah. Oh. No, that's too long time ago since I was there, I have to say. <laughs> you know, you're, you're very kind. Listen, what, what you can do is to continue the good work you've done already. You seem Ooh. to be amazing. So oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. that.